Chapter Nine of Prejudices, First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shasta, Oakland, California. Prejudices, First Series by H. L. Mencken chapter nine george ade when after the japs and their vassals conquer us and put us to the sword and the republic descends into hell some literary don of oxford or middle europa proceeds to the predestined autopsy upon our complete works one of the things he will surely notice reviewing our literary history is the curious persistence with which the dons native to the land have overlooked its emergence of men of letters i mean of course its genuine men of letters its salient and truly original men its men of intrinsic and unmistakable distinction the fourth raiders have fared well enough god knows go back to any standard literature book of ten or twenty or thirty or fifty years ago and you will be amazed by its praise of shoddy mediocrities long since fly-blown and forgotten george william curtis now seldom heard of at all save perhaps in the reminiscences of senile publishers was treated in his day with all the deference due to a prince of the blood artemus ward petroleum v nasby and half a dozen other such hollow buffoons were ranked with mark twain and even above him frank r stockton for thirty years was the delight of all right-thinking reviewers richard henry stoddard and edmund clarence stedman were eminent personages both as critics and as poets and donald g mitchell to make an end of dull names bulked so grandly in the academic eye that he was snatched from his tear-jugs and his teapots to become a charter member of the national institutes of arts and letters actually died a member of the american academy meanwhile three of the five indubitably first-rate artists that america has produced went quite without orthodox recognition at home until either foreign enthusiasm or domestic clamor from below forced them into a belated and grudging sort of notice i need not say that i allude to poe whitman and mark twain if it ever occurred to any american critic of position during poe's lifetime that he was a greater man than either cooper or irving then i have been unable to find any trace of the fact in the critical literature of the time the truth is that he was looked upon 
as a facile and somewhat dubious journalist too cocksure by half and not a man to be encouraged lowell praised him in eighteen forty five and at the same time denounced the current overpraise of lesser men but later on this encomium was diluted with very important reservations and there the matter stood until baudelaire discovered the poet and his belated fame came winging home whitman as every one knows faced even worse emerson first hailed him and then turned tail upon him eager to avoid any share in his ill repute among blockheads no other critic of any influence gave him help he was carried through his dark days of poverty and persecution by a few private enthusiasts none of them with the ear of the public and in the end it was frenchmen and englishmen who lifted him into the light imagine a harvard professor lecturing upon him in eighteen sixty five as for mark twain the story of his first fifteen years has been admirably told by professor dr william lyon phelps of yale the dons were unanimously against him some sneered at him as a feeble mountbank others refused to discuss him at all not one harbored the slightest suspicion that he was a man of genius or even one leg of a man of genius phelps makes merry over this academic attempt to dispose of mark by putting him into coventry and himself joins the sectimonious brethren who essay the same enterprise against dreiser i come by this route to george ade who perhaps fails to fit into the argument doubly for on the one hand he is certainly not a literary artist of the first rank and on the other hand he has long enjoyed a meed of appreciation and even honor for the national institute of arts and letters elevated him to its gilt-edged purple in its first days and he is still on its roll of men of notable achievement in art music and literature along with robert w chambers henry sidnor harrison oliver herford e s martin and e w townsend author of chimmy fadden nevertheless he does not fall too far outside after all for if he is not of the first rank then he surely deserves a respectable place in the second rank and if the national institute broke the spell by admitting him then it was probably on the theory that he was a second chambers or herford or maybe even a second martin or townsend as for the textbook dons they hold resolutely to the doctrine that he scarcely exists and is not worth noticing at all 
for example there is professor fred lewis patty author of a history of american literature since eighteen seventy professor patty notices chambers marion harland herford townsend amelie rives r k munkertrick and many other such ornaments of the national letters and even has polite bows for gellett burgess carolyn wells and john kendrick bangs but the name of aid is missing from his index as is that of dreiser so with the other pedagogues they are unanimously shy of aid in their horn books for sophomores and they are gingerly in their praise of him in their innumerable review articles he is commended when at all much as the late joseph jefferson used to be commended that is to the accompaniment of reminders that even a clown is one of god's creatures and may have the heart of a christian under his motley the most laudatory thing ever said of him by any critic of the apostolic succession so far as i can discover is that he is clean that he does not import the lewd buffooneries of the barroom the smoking car and the wedding reception into his books but what are the facts the facts are that aid is one of the few genuinely original literary craftsmen now in practice among us that he comes nearer to making literature when he has full steam up than any save a scant half-dozen of our current novelists and that the whole body of his work both in books and for the stage is as thoroughly american in cut and color in tang and savor in structure and point of view as the work of howells e w howe or mark twain no single american novel that i can think of shows half the sense of nationality the keen feeling for national prejudice and peculiarity the sharp and pervasive americanism of such adian fables as the good fairy of the eighth ward and the dollar excursion of the steam fitters the mandolin players and the willing performer and the adult girl who got busy before they could ring the bell on her here amid a humor so grotesque that it almost tortures the midriff there is a startlingly vivid and accurate evocation of the american scene here under all the labored extravagance there are brilliant flashlight pictures of the american people and american ways of thinking and the whole of american culture here the veritable americano stands forth lacking not a waggery a superstition a snuffle or a wen aid himself for all his story-teller's pretense of remoteness is as absolutely american as any of his prairie-town traders and pushers shylocks 
and dogberries bow and bells no other writer of our generation save perhaps howe is more unescapably national in his every gesture and trick of mind he is as american as buckwheat cakes or the knights of pythias or the chautauqua or billy sunday or a bull by dr wilson he fairly reeks of the national philistinism the national respect for respectability the national distrust of ideas he is a marcher one fancies in parades he joins movements and movements against movements he knows no language save his own he regards a roosevelt quite seriously and a mozart or an ibsen as a joke one would not be surprised to hear that until he went off to his freshwater college he slept in his underwear and read the epworth herald but like dreiser he is a peasant touched by the divine fire somehow a great instinctive artist got himself born out there on that lush indiana farm he has the rare faculty of seeing accurately even when the thing seen is directly under his nose and he has the still rarer faculty of recording vividly of making the thing seen move with life one often doubts a character in a novel even in a good novel but who ever doubted gus in the two mandolin players or may in sister may or to pass from the fables payson in mr payson's satirical christmas here with stokes so crude and obvious that they seem to be laid on with a broom aid achieves what o henry with all his ingenuity always failed to achieve he fills his bizarre tales with human beings there is never any artfulness on the surface the tale itself is never novel or complex it never surprises often it is downright banal but underneath there is an artfulness infinitely well wrought and that is the artfulness of a story-teller who dredges his story out of his people swiftly and skilfully and does not squeeze his people into his story laboriously and unconvincingly needless to say a moralist stands behind the comedian he would teach he even grows indignant roaring like a yokel at a burlesque show over such wild and light-hearted jocosities as paducah's favorite comedian and why gondola was put away one turns with something of a start to such things as little looty the honest money-maker and the corporation director and the mislaid ambition up to a certain point it is all laughter but after that there is a flash of the knife a show of teeth 
Here, a national limitation often closes in upon the satirist. He cannot quite separate the unaccustomed from the abominable. He is unable to avoid rattling his philistine trappings a bit proudly. He must prove that he, too, is a right-thinking American, a solid citizen, and a patriot, unshaken in his lofty rectitude by such poisons as aristocracy, adultery, or divers, and the sonata form. But in other directions, this thoroughgoing nationalism helps him rather than hinders him. It enables him, for one thing, to see into sentimentality and to comprehend it and project it accurately. I know of no book which displays the mooniness of youth with more feeling and sympathy than Artie, save it be Frank Norris's forgotten Blake's. In such fields, aid achieves a success that is rare and indubitable. He makes the thing charming as he makes it plain. But all these fables and other compositions of his are mere sketches, inconsiderable trifles, impromptus, in bad English, easy to write, and of no importance. Are they, indeed? Do not believe it for a moment. Fifteen or twenty years ago, when Aid was at the height of his celebrity as a newspaper, Skinnerell, scores of hack comedians tried to imitate him, and all failed. I myself was of the number. I operated a so-called funny column in a daily newspaper, and, like my colleagues near and far, I essayed to manufacture fables in slang. What miserable botches they were! How easy it was to imitate Aid's manner, and how impossible to imitate his matter! No, please don't get the notion that it is a simple thing to write such a fable as that of the all-night seance and the limit that ceased to be, or that of the preacher who flew his kite, but not because he wished to do so, or that of the roistering blades. Far from it. On the contrary, the only way you will ever accomplish the feat will be by first getting aid's firm grasp upon american character and his ability to think out a straightforward simple amusing story and his alert feeling for contrast and climax and his extraordinary talent for devising novel vivid and unforgettable phrases those phrases of his sometimes wear the external vestments of a passing slang that they are no more commonplace and vulgar at bottom than gray's mute inglorious milton or the somewheres east of suez of kipling they reduce an idea to a few pregnant syllables 
they give the attention a fillet and light up a whole scene in a flash they are the running evidences of an eye that sees clearly and of a mind that thinks shrewdly they give distinction to the work of a man who has so well concealed a highly complex and efficient artistry that few have ever noticed it. End of chapter 15